Now, Father, as we reach for our Bibles, would you do your job? Would you, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, just minister, challenge our church, Lord. Wake us up. Help us to realize these are last days and the world needs all the light and the salt it can get. Help us to realize with a great and renewed reality uh, the task at hand of spreading the gospel around the world and how it really matters. Thank you once again for our missionaries who have shared, and I pray that you will encourage them as they go their way this afternoon. Now, Father, in these minutes ahead, quiet our hearts, clear our minds, give us attentive ears, give us a willingness to make change where change is due. Bring renewal and revival, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've heard yet or not, but this being the first Sunday of March, We're starting a new movement here at Fellowship Bible Church. It's Lost Souls Awareness Sunday. Are you with me? We've got the gear. L-S-A-S. Lost Souls Awareness Sunday. We've got the cool bracelets, right? The cool bracelets. We've got the little ribbons. We want to be aware. I don't in any way want to be disparaging of awareness. Um... Notice the shoestrings. Lost Souls Awareness Sunday. I thought about calling it Lost Souls Day. LSD didn't sound right to me. (laughs) Lost Souls Day sounded like a a Catholic holiday or something. Um, You know, awareness is a really important thing. But I really am worried about something about our church. I'm worried that our annual missions conference is sort of that, just kind of a lost souls awareness Sunday. And it's kind of our awareness thing. And somehow we imagine that because we talked about missions, and somehow we imagine that because we fellowshiped with our missionaries and heard from them, that we've kind of done our missions thing for the year, and we're, we're really with it. Now, I'm not against awareness. We can't make good decisions without awareness, can we? But if our annual World Missions Weekend only accomplishes a little bit of a feeling of awareness, I'm not sure it's very successful. I'll tell you what, we've got a huge task at hand. If the gospel is true, and it is, and if Jesus has called us to go to the farthest reaches of the world, and he has, we have an overwhelming responsibility. It takes more than awareness, doesn't it? More than awareness. Our theme, as you've heard um, this weekend, is what role do you play? What role do you play? I want to challenge our church to step up its role in world missions. We're going to have a two-part sermon, two main points this morning to help guide us. And the first question I want to ask before we address our theme question of what role do you play is I want to ask the question, what reasons do we have to care? Why should we care? What difference does it make if there's people in, a t- in Italy that don't follow Jesus or if on native reservations in western Alberta, Canada, they don't care about Jesus? What concern of that is that to me? How is that my concern? And so in calling for us to have a renewed awareness, lost souls awareness Sunday, get the shoestrings. I want to also remind us of the theology of missions and why we do what we do and why we must care. What reasons do we have to care? 
Begin with me, will you? And I'm going to have you be turning in your Bibles this morning in a little bit as we study the Word together. We'll try to keep it rolling. But turn to Matthew right now. Matthew chapter 28, perhaps the most familiar of all missionary passages. But it is also foundational to all that we do. And I want to give you three reasons that Fellowship Bible Church needs to be more than just aware. Three reasons that we need to be more than just aware. But these are the compelling reasons for involvement in world missions. Reason number one is that the command could not be clearer. The command could not be clearer. Listen to our Lord's words. You need to know that in Matthew 28, this is the last few verses of Matthew's gospel, gospel, It also marks on the timeline of our Lord's ministry, the conclusion of his time here on earth. He will now very shortly, what is recorded for us in Acts chapter 1, before his disciples ascend in the clouds up into heaven, 40 days after the resurrection now. And there he is to this day until the moment of his return and his return is sure. We're the church and we're waiting for our Lord's return. In Acts 1 it says, in the same manner that he went up, he will come again. It's real, a physical reappearing in the clouds, coming to earth for his church. The last words that our Lord Jesus said were these. Go therefore, verse 19, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ's last words become our marching orders. It's a directive to the church. You might ask, on what authority do we have? On what basis would we go around the world sharing this gospel? You need to know this is not an American gospel. This is not an American tradition. That this is, look at verse 18, this is a word from him. Jesus came and said to them, verse 18, this is a word from him whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the Son of God in the flesh, authenticated through the great resurrection that we'll celebrate in a few weeks, pronouncing to all of his people, your task now upon my departure is to continue to go all around the world and preach the gospel. It's a directive, it's not a suggestion, and it couldn't be clearer, could it? I think of this on a couple terms, a couple levels. On the one hand, it's almost humorous to imagine Jesus ascending back into heaven, arriving back in heaven, and having the angels rush around him. So good to have you back. We really worried about you down there. And here he is. They said, now you went and the angels are trying to figure out this redemptive plan. The angels do not understand this great salvation. It's a puzzle to them. The song of the redeemed uh, is not quite as real to them because they have not been lost in their sinfulness and then bought back through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, sealed through his resurrection and raised in newness of life with his resurrection, justified, positioned in the heavenlies as righteous ones, saved by grace through faith. Amen. The angels come up to him and, okay, now... Right before you left, Jesus, you said for them to go, is, what's your backup plan? What are you going to do? You did all of this to promote your gospel, to save people, and there's ages to come. Surely this thing's good. What's your... No, I, I told 12 guys. 
I told 12 guys to go and preach the gospel. That's your plan? It's kind of a lousy plan. I'm not sure that's a very successful strategy to 12, 12 crusty old men to say, now you go and you preach my gospel. Look what it says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the point of conversion, isn't it? That is souls being saved, looking to the cross that is being lifted up by God's servants and God's people, recognizing that their sinfulness is a lid on the relationship with a holy God who cannot look at sin. And so only by Christ alone can they go and have their sin forgiven. Spiritually speaking, by faith, his blood washes us clean. We're the blood-bought ones. And they're saved and they make that known through water baptism representing the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. That's the point of conversion, but it doesn't stop there. And it says, and then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the role of making disciples and teaching people all around the world. It's an ongoing process. It's a huge task. But it couldn't be clearer, could it? You see, you can't get to heaven someday and stand before the Lord and say... He says, hey, how did you do? Did you baptize a few people? Have you been teaching people to follow through and obey everything that our Lord commanded before he left and told you to carry on? Oh, oh, I I missed that one. It doesn't get any clearer. I'm telling you, I know that there's a lot of hard things to understand in the Bible. This is not one of them. It couldn't be any clearer. But let's think a little further. Just leave your Bibles open where they are because we're coming back to Matthew in just a minute. But secondly, I I want to give you another reason to care. Not only should we care because Christ's command to us could not be clearer and we will be held accountable to that. But I want to remind you that the consequences could not be greater. The consequences could not be greater. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 3. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see, if the Bible's true, and it is, and Jesus Christ, John 14, 6, alone is the way, the truth, and the life. This is an exclusive gospel. All other world religions are a part of a deceptive scheme of the evil one, the prince of the power of the air, to distract and turn people away from the one true gospel. You cannot have multiple truths in one sphere. It's contradictory. It cannot be. And Christ alone authenticated the truth through, as I've said, his resurrection. And if you are in the Son, S-O-N, you have life. You've been restored in relationship with your Creator God. He can look at you because He no longer sees you. He sees the righteousness of Christ with which you're robed because you've broken and violated every one of the commands. And we're guilty of all of our sinfulness. But Christ kept all the commands. In Him is the fulfillment of all the commands. And His transfer of righteousness is what saves us. We give him our sin. He he gives us his righteousness. 
But if you are not saved, if you've never been to the cross, if the blood of Christ has not washed away your sin, whereby an act of faith you've received by God's free grace, his salvation, you are not saved, my friend, and you are bound for eternal torment and punishment in hell, according to the scriptures. It's overwhelming reality, isn't it? To think that someone in this room who's outside of Christ will die and perish in eternal, everlasting lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20 verse 15 says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire forever. Repeatedly in scripture, the Bible warns us that those without Christ will be in utter darkness, in everlasting torment, a place where it says, the worm never dies. I'm not 100% sure what that means, but I don't like places where the worm never dies. Think about what Paul said in that wonderful unfolding of logic as he proposed that we who sit in the chair of eternal condemnation can get out of the death penalty chair and into the chair of life through our Lord Jesus Christ when he said, listen, all of you have sinned and you come short of the glory of God. He goes on to build on his case and say, and the wages of that sin is, say it with me, death. But the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Listen to me. As you profile people, and we all profile people, don't we? Oh, he's got dreadlocks. He's scary. He might be the nicest library book reading guy you've ever met. You don't know. That guy's got a lot of money, I'll bet you. You don't know. He might be the the most in-debt guy you've ever met. He just looks like he has a lot of money. So that guy's lucky. Look at his girlfriend. He might be the most miserable guy in a relationship you've ever been around. We all profile. Do you profile the two most basic and important categories in which people can be placed? They're either in the light and in Christ or they're in darkness and headed for eternal damnation and having to pay the penalty for their own sin, having no substitute, being without hope and they don't know it. It should break our hearts. And so the consequences could not be greater. Eternity in heaven or an absolute antinomy, eternity separated from Christ. The third reason that we ought to care is, number three, that the conditions could not be better. Matthew chapter 9. You're still in Matthew, I think. Matthew chapter 9. And look at our words of our Lord Jesus. Then I want you to remember this passage because we're going to talk about it in a minute. Matthew chapter 9. And I want us to know that the conditions for sharing the gospel could not be better. You say, wait a minute, Pastor Van. I talk to people a little bit. It's hard to talk. I know, but here's how you need to think about it. Um, When I was a kid, my dad was a big berry picker. My dad grew up in the Depression, and so whenever he could get his hands on food and store it, he did. And my dad's great saying was when we were picking blueberries in Michigan where we grew up, or strawberries or peaches, and having to peel blanched peaches or scalded, whatever you call peel the skin off, and mom would have rows and rows of jars on the shelf, and I couldn't stand it. Now I think it's beautiful. And, and my dad would say, Better than eating snowballs next winter. 
so we're picking blueberries, and in southern Michigan, the beautiful blueberry bushes, and, and my dad would put a bucket on his belt, and he could pick berries with both hands, and I'm over there trying to find berries and pick them and mumbling and groaning and making his life and my life miserable. Should have been whipped. And then picking strawberries. You know, when the picking's good, it's okay. When you can't find it, hardly find it. Come on, Dad, we've been picking. There's no more berries. No, don't. You're leaving behind. And he would go back where we had already been and pick more berries. And you'd pick them. Listen, when it comes to world missions, there's sinners everywhere in this world. It's easy picking. You don't have to go anywhere to find sinners. They're everywhere. The conditions couldn't be better. You never saw such a pagan country as the one we live in. You, don't have, you can go anywhere, get off of any plane at any airport in any country, and you're ripe for the picking in missions land. There's no Christian nations anywhere, is there? I don't know where they are. I don't know where people are good people over there. They might be good, but they're lost as can be. So that's what I mean by... Why we should care is because the conditions couldn't be better. Look what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9. Everywhere you look, everywhere you look, there's lost people who need to be saved. Matthew chapter 9, begin with verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. What a marvelous time this three-year window of physical miracles was authenticating his message. Verse 36, And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you ever look at people like that? Just harassed and helpless. They need a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful. Everywhere you look, there's people who need the Lord, but where's the laborers? Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The old King James translation was, remember, the fields are white unto harvest. Everywhere you look, there must be fruit to be harvested. And you know, our job is tough. You can't make somebody believe, but our job is to share the gospel. And I wonder how many people God is calling unto himself. And his design plan is in this mechanism of missions is that somebody's voice would communicate to somebody's ears the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the Spirit of God can then take that and to make the scales come off their eyes and the plugs come out of their ears and their stony heart becomes soft. But if they do not hear, how shall they believe? And how will they hear if there's no preacher? Romans chapter 10. So my friends, Fellowship Bible Church has to care about missions. It's without option. This is not a multiple choice thing. And it's not just awareness. It is mobilization. It is do something about it. Don't just, the more you know. We know so much, but we're doing so little, I'm afraid. The command could not be clearer. The consequences could not be greater. And the conditions could not be better. What a time for missions and evangelism it is everywhere you look. Well, that's the answer to question number one. What reason do I care? For what reason do I care? Why do I care? Three reasons right there. Now to our theme. And 
And let's, let's conclude the last part of our message answering the question, so what role do I play? Personalize it, change you to I. What role do I play? Ask yourself. How do I get involved? What are some ways that I need to think about myself? I'm not sure I can really do anything. I'm kind of, kind of get fumbling around when I try to explain the Bible. And the Bible is a big book with a lot of small print. And I'm just kind of intimidated by people who know more about it than I do, even though they don't like, they don't like Jesus. And, 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 and I don't know, we live in a multicultural world. Why should I impose my thoughts on someone else? And I don't know, I'm really, really busy. I don't know if I have time for all this. I thought that it might be helpful for us to look at some models in Scripture. It always helps me to look and see what people are doing and what have they done and let's learn from them. I have a few models for you as to help us picture how we can get mobilized, how we can get in in action and put into action all of our awareness. Awareness into action. The first is found in Mark's gospel and, and excuse me, Luke's gospel and chapter five. It is in Mark also, but um, Luke chapter five is where I'm asking you to turn. Luke chapter five and uh, look at verse 17. What I want to do now is I want us to look at Scripture and turn in the Scriptures together, and we're going to find some models for missions and and see which one we can relate to, which one motivates me, which one of these these dynamics or techniques or or the the ways in which these people lived out the gospel. How can I relate to that personally? The first one is the entrepreneur, the entrepreneur number one, the spiritual entrepreneur missionary. You might not think of these guys as missionaries right away, but by the time we look at them, I think you'll find out that they were true spiritual entrepreneurs connecting needy people with Jesus. It's a wonderful story. It's chapter 5, begins with verse 17, and it was on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him, Jesus, to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. It's a pitiful thing, isn't it, to see a paralyzed man. The muscles have shrunken. He's withered. He is totally helpless who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But, verse 19 says, finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. Did you get that? So Jesus has a lot of power coming through him. He's making the blind to see. He's making the lame to walk. Crowds are following him. These Pharisees and teachers of the law are watching him underneath a microscope, trying to find fault with him. He's going to give them some ammunition here in a minute. They're on the front row seats and they're like, how can we get this Jesus? This Jesus is nails on a chalkboard to them. They're there. The crowds are there. And there's these four guys, I take it, who have a buddy who needs Jesus. They have a broken buddy. You got any broken buddies? You got any broken friends who need Jesus? How hard have you tried to figure out to get them to intersect with our Savior? 
These guys had seen Jesus in action and they knew that what their buddy needed was to come be with Jesus. They bring him on his mat, it says. I take it they have him by the corner of his straw mat. It's a heavy woven straw mat, maybe a blanket, a stretcher kind of thing. And they're carrying him up there. And here's the crowds, the masses. They can't get to Jesus. So what do they do? One of the guys probably said, oh man, we can't get to Jesus. I guess we'll do it another day. Another guy said, no, no. Look, there's stairs. They go up to the roof. Let's go up to the roof. Somebody's looking in, trying to see where Jesus is. Okay, he's about like two-thirds of the way back and a fourth of the way over. That's where he's standing. They go up on this flat roof. Roofs were used to dry, to dry grains and things. And for people to be up there and to get up in a safe place and different, different reasons. They'd put their laundry out to dry up on the roof. Tile, it probably was clay tile of some kind. The entrepreneur says... You need Jesus, and I'm going to figure out a way to get you to Jesus. And so these guys go up on the roof, and they tear up the roof. I doubt there was a sunlight there. They tore it up, and the people down below, what are they doing? They look up, hey, what are you doing? Stop, knock it off. You're getting junk in my eyes. And they say, nothing, we don't care. We've got a buddy that needs Jesus, and Jesus is right there. We're not stopping now. Somebody ran home behind their shed, got some rope, tied it to the stretcher, and they're lowering it down, this guy. Wouldn't you love to bend there? And the Pharisees are, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? And Jesus said, Jesus looked at the four heads hanging through the hole in the roof, and he says he saw their faith, and he told the guy here, your sin's forgiven. And the Pharisees went off. What do you mean you forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. That's what they were looking for. Somebody who would commit blasphemy as a teacher so they could take him outside the city walls and stone him and kill him. Jesus said, knowing what they're thinking, Jesus said, Oh, you got a problem with me forgiving this guy's sin? How about this one? Rise up and walk. How great would that have been, huh? And it really happened. Awesome. Take up your bed and walk, my buddy. And the Pharisees were shut down and quiet. I have a couple of lessons about spiritual entrepreneurs from these guys up on the roof with their heads hanging down thinking, Wow, it worked! We got him to Jesus and Jesus changed his life. He fixed him. Four characteristics of spiritual entrepreneurs. Number one, they are action-oriented. They are action-oriented. They don't just talk about it. They didn't just talk about getting their buddy to Jesus. They did something to make it happen. Have you recognized that we're in a divine teamwork relationship with God and the gospel? That God, when he went to heaven, did command us and he's counting on us to do our part now. He does his part if we do our part. And so often we do not see him do his part because we haven't done our part. Secondly, Spiritual entrepreneurs are risk takers. They will do things other people won't or they doubt is a good idea. I'm thinking there was one guy. I'm thinking there was one guy in the group that made it happen. Of the, say, four guys are carrying this guy, maybe one big guy was carrying the end and there was three or something. But one guy says, we'll do it another day. The other guy says, oh, that's too bad. The other guy says, we're not doing it another day. We're this close. We're getting him to Jesus. So he's starting, the wheels are turning, go get my rope, we're going up on the roof, he starts tearing. And the other guy says, that's not a good idea. The other guy says again, I doubt this is going to work. 
The Pharisees and the teachers aren't going to like all that junk falling in their hair and on their heads. The spiritual entrepreneur says, doesn't matter, let's do it, we can do it, we can do it. The spiritual entrepreneur loves to take the things that he imagines and turn them into mechanisms for the gospel. You ever notice that? I had a young man with me as a youth intern 20 years ago. Um, not quite 20 years ago, 15 years ago, or more than that. When I was finishing up my youth ministry, it was probably 18 years ago. Over at Independent Bible Church, I'll tell you his name. He's been in our pulpit. His name is Dean Plumley. Dean Plumley is, it kind of falls into the category of a spiritual entrepreneur. He grew up in Hedgesville, West Virginia at Independent Bible Church. I'm the youth pastor at this time in the mid-90s at, at Independent Bible Church. And he's a youth intern, finishing Bible college, full of zeal, almost no knowledge, and just excited to share the gospel with people. And he gets excited about all things, of all things, surfing. He becomes a surfer dude in Hedgesville, West Virginia. I want to tell you something. There isn't any water in Hedgesville, West Virginia that you can surf. And so I tried not to take his heart away, but I kept thinking, man, this is, this is kind of nuts. He goes out and finds this like 1964 Ford van. I forget the model name. It's not, I don't know if it's Fairlane, that's something else, but this Ford van with a little cab over engine between the front seats, a little thing, two-tone surfer beach boys looking thing, piece of junk. And he loves it. Dude, look at my van. Where are you going? I'm going to Ocean City. I'm going to reach surfers for Jesus. I don't know any surfers. I don't surf. We're in I got a text from Dean. That was the summer of 1996. Dean, Dean is today the president of Christian Surfers International. He travels the world speaking at seminars, training people how to disciple people who know nothing about Christ. He, says, he said to me one time, he was teaching a whole group, a whole room full of people in Colorado in a winter conference of people where they gathered for a conference, he said, dude, surfing guys have to say, dude. He said, dude, I don't know what to tell them, so I just taught them Pinter's soteriological notes. That's our theology instructor at Appalachian Bible College. I just taught them all the things about justification and sanctification, everything I could think to teach them about what it meant to be saved. How great is that? My phone chirped at 7.30 the other morning. I looked down, it was Dean. He doesn't contact me that often. We're... I consider him a friend. We talk every once in a while. Hey, brother. This is this week. Hey, brother. Yesterday, a surfer I met in 96. That's when he was my intern and going to Ocean City um, whenever he could get a day off. And I was like telling him he's nuts. A surfer I met in 96 in Ocean City was born again. Praise God for his faithful pursuit. Amen. What is that? I never led a surfer to Christ. I don't talk to surfers. They scare me a little bit. I like button-down collars, you know. I, I don't look good without a shirt on. That is a spiritual entrepreneur. You understand what I'm saying? How is it that God takes my love for shooting skeet and it becomes a mechanism for the gospel? How is it that God takes my love for chess and it becomes a mechanism for the gospel? Become a spiritual entrepreneur. I've got friends. They're broken. They need Jesus. How do I connect them? I don't know, but I'm going to figure out it away if I'm a spiritual entrepreneur. I think there's spiritual entrepreneurs here that are living below their potential. 
Four characteristics of spiritual entrepreneurs. They are action-oriented. They, they are risk-takers. That's Dean Plumley. They can handle criticism. Those guys, hey, stop it. They, I'm not stopping. Pastor Van thinks I'm nuts going to Ocean City. I don't care. I'm going to Ocean City. They can handle criticism, and they are highly committed. They are highly committed. They have a strong pit bull determination to get their friends connected with Jesus, and they're going to figure out a way to do it. You trying to figure out how to get people connected with Jesus? We have to move along. We've got some other examples that I think are very helpful. Let's go to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And you need to know that there's another kind of missionary out there. Not only are there the spiritual entrepreneurs, and maybe some of you should be spiritual entrepreneurs, but there are spiritual encouragers. Encouragers are needed in the world of spreading the gospel. Let me show you what I mean by that. Are you an encourager? Acts chapter 15 records for us an interesting little account that goes on between Barnabas. We're going to see his name in a minute again. Barnabas is known as the son of encouragement. He was just an encourager in the early church. He was also a counterpart, a a worker alongside the apostle Paul. Barnabas, in fact, in Acts chapter 9, Barnabas, in fact, is the one that connected with Paul right after he got the name Paul from being Saul when he was converted as a terrorist to Christians on the road to Damascus and the entire church was fleeing from him. He's the one who martyred Steve, murdered Stephen. Paul gets saved and becomes immediately an apologist For the gospel and an evangelist, it says in Acts chapter 9 that immediately after Saul's conversion, that he could take the Old Testament scriptures and he could prove to people in dialogue that Jesus was the Messiah. That's pretty cool. He knew the scriptures so well. But the church was afraid of him. And in Acts chapter 9, it's a great account. Guess who comes alongside, watches Paul, who used to be Saul, who used to be a hated enemy of the church, who's now the greatest preacher in the church, they just don't know it yet, the greatest missionary church planner that will ever live. And Barnabas puts his arm around Paul, brings him into the body, connects him with the leadership in the church and says, this guy is great. You've never seen anybody handle the scripture like this guy. This guy's the real deal. And the brothers put their arms around Paul. And Paul was welcomed into the church from that day on. Because Barnabas spotted him, encouraged him, and connected him to the people that needed to know him. Later, many years later, after Paul and Barnabas have planted churches and the missionary movement of the gospel has gone on around the world, Paul says to Barnabas, verse 36, chapter 15, Acts, Paul says to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. That's the missionary movement. And let's see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. You see, Paul had put together a a short cycle church planning team. Paul had assembled the right team. He was going to go church planning. And this young man, John Mark, was on the team. And at the last minute, John Mark bailed on him. And Paul didn't like that. Paul had a plan. Paul had handpicked the people. John Mark let him down. Paul didn't forgive him. Get out of my space. I don't have time to mess around. I am a busy church planner. Just go your way. Mark had let him down in his youth and in his inexperience. And Barnabas said... Paul, it's time to take Mark with us. 
Paul said, no, look at the next phrase. And there arose a sharp disagreement, verse 39, so that they separated from each. Paul and Barnabas couldn't get along over the deal, so they separate and Barnabas takes John Mark with him. And they sail away to Cyprus and John Mark writes the Gospel of Mark. Because Barnabas wouldn't let him drop. Because Barnabas wouldn't let him waste his life. Because Barnabas saw something in that young man that God could use. Because Barnabas came alongside and said, John Mark, it's time to get with the work. Sunday school teachers, do you see your kids as potential missionaries? Maybe the words of a fourth grade Sunday school teacher after class. I see your love for scriptures, Johnny. I see your love for scriptures, Lucy. Grow in grace. Someday you're going to be an excellent teacher of the gospel. Keep growing. What do words of encouragement mean? Maybe some kid that's off in Bible college and he's going to do, he's at a Christian college, but he's thinking about ministry. He's going to do computers and, you know, sports medicine or whatever. Maybe he just needs his soccer coach to come alongside him and say, don't short circuit your life. Get involved in youth ministry. Let's go. Are you an encourager? A couple of characteristics about encouragers is um, that they are good with people. They care about people. They believe in you. Number two, they often have connections even globally. You know who I think about is Sam Erickson. Bobby's back here. His, His bride, his widow. Sam knew people all over the world. And Sam went around the world encouraging people to get in the ministry, taking their craft, their trade, whatever, mainly attorneys and adjudicators and lawyers, work for Christ. He was an encourager. Encouragers are often good with people. They care about people. They believe in you. Number two, they often have connections, even globally, and they bring people together. And number three, they are usually the mature believers in the body And they have a high level of trust. It's like when Barnabas brought Paul into the body and said, this guy's okay. Everybody believed it because Barnabas was a trusted, mature believer. Are you an encourager? Who can you encourage? Who can you strengthen in the ministry? We have the entrepreneur. We have the encourager. We must talk about the evangelist, huh? How about the evangelist? Are you an evangelist? I love this story. It's Mark's gospel in chapter 5. Mark's Gospel in chapter 5, and and we kind of have to just hit the high spots so you understand what we're talking about. But in Mark's Gospel chapter 5, Jesus lands in the country of the Gerizines, gets out of his boat. There's a real steep embankment there. Up on top of the embankment is a tombs, a cemetery, and a crazy man lives in the tombs. He's demon-possessed. He's powerful. The community despises him. He's an embarrassment to their community. He wails and cries out. He's out of his mind. He's a lunatic. He's so powerful from the demons. He is the most pitiful, wretched man you've ever seen. He cuts himself The parallel accounts say the community men gather and go up there with chains and ropes, try to chain him and bind him and and prohibit his movement because they can't even have a a funeral anymore. He goes and comes after the dead bodies and he's just crazy. He takes the chains that they wrap him in and he pops the chains. He's superhuman strength because of the demons. Jesus lands his boat. This is all in Mark chapter five. Jesus lands his boat. The crazy man of Gadaria comes running down to him, falls on his knees before Jesus and the demons inside him, there are at least 2,000 demons. 
Demons Legion, a Roman military size of, of troop. And um, the demons say, Jesus, Son of the Most High, God, what do you want with me? Jesus goes to cast them out. They know that Jesus is going to cast them out of the man. They beg him to not be disembodied. They, do, they beg him not to be thrown into the, the abyss of eternal torment. And they beg to be put into the hogs and swine that are feeding. It says there was at least 2,000. The demons go into the hogs. The hogs go hog wild, no pun intended, run off the cliff and drown in the sea. And we pick up the story right after that. About 2,000, verse 13, Mark 5, about 2,000 pigs rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned. A herdsman fled and told it in the city and country. In verse 15, and they came to Jesus to see what had happened. And the demon-possessed man, verse 15, the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion of demons, was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. It says they were afraid People who are unregenerate can never quite figure out what to do with Jesus. But what a phenomenal picture. A crazy man, possessed by demons, cutting himself, living in the tombs, cannot even be controlled by chains. And they come, he encounters Jesus, and he's sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. You got any friends that need Jesus so they can get their right mind back? Now notice what happens at the end of the story. And they began, verse 17, to beg Jesus to depart their region. They wanted Jesus out of there. I don't know why exactly. They just couldn't figure him out. He scared them. He might change their lives too, I guess. As he was getting into the boat, Jesus that is, verse 18, Mark 5, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Look what it says. Can't you picture Jesus getting in the boat, telling the disciples, let's go now. They get their poles out. They're trying to push the boat away from shore. And this guy comes running down and he's like, he's wanting to get in the boat. And look what it says. And he did not permit him, but he said, go home. No, you're not going with us. Get out of my boat. Don't come in the boat. Go home. He doesn't stop there. Go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. He becomes a missionary. He doesn't just go home and tell his family how God has been merciful. I'm home, family. Look at me. I'm dressed. But this guy is an evangelist. This guy cannot not talk about Jesus. And he goes into the 10 city area. Where he lived, there were 10 cities. The area of the Decapolis. There were 10 communities. And he went to every one of the 10 communities. And he said, see this scar right here? I used to cut myself with sharp rocks. And then one day I met Jesus and he fixed me. You need Jesus. That's what an evangelist does. Here's the qualities of, of an evangelist. They often have a personal testimony of how Christ has dramatically changed his or her life and they just can't get over it. That's an evangelist. They, you know, some of you are there. Man, if you, you can't believe what I used to look like. It's like Lon Solomon, the pastor of McLean Bible Church, Totally stoned out of his mind on the campus in North Carolina, down in North Carolina, and a street preacher preaching the gospel leads him to Christ. Just stoned and hair everywhere, and just a weird, wacko guy back in the 70s, late 60s. 
on every kind of drug. And now he's preaching the gospel this morning in his pulpit. You know what I used to be? But not now. Let me tell you about it. They cannot not talk about it. You know people like that. Some of you are like that. Evangelists, number two, are very bold and and courageous. They're very bold and and courageous. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. An evangelist doesn't care if you're making fun of him because the evangelist, point number one, almost always has a testimony of tremendous transformation. And you can say whatever they want, but they know they used to be stoned up in a tree, spitting down on people on the sidewalk, and now they're clothed and in their right mind living for Jesus. So you can say whatever you want, but they know what Jesus did for them. One of our problems with many of us, the reason we don't talk about Jesus, is we don't think that Jesus did so much for us. We are pretty good to begin with. And we forget how lost we really were. And how it's only by his grace that we have a story now to tell. The third thing the evangelist is, he's always deeply bothered when the gospel is ignored or overlooked. You guys that are evangelists here, they're always after me. Pastor Van, we've got to buy this video and pass it out to everybody. We need to do more evangelism around here. Hey, Pastor Van, I'm going to this seminar. You've got to do this. We've got to have more evangelism around here. Hey, Pastor Van, all the guys in the church who are evangelists, I love them. Pastor Van, I went out passing out tracts the other day. Well, I didn't pass out any tracts. I had to get ready to preach. But I just can't get over what Jesus did for them. And they boldly want to proclaim it everywhere. Some of you evangelists, you've got to go. Spread the word. There's two more, and I, let me just quickly wrap them up and then we'll go. We have the entrepreneur, we have the encourager, we have the evangelist. How about the enabler? The enabler. Enabling is something that has become very negative. In Webster's Dictionary, an enabler is somebody who provides the means or opportunity to make possible or practical or easy something that needs to be done or wants to be done. Nowadays, an enabler is somebody who helps somebody who's dysfunctional stay dysfunctional. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking in the true sense of the word. An enabler is somebody who makes possible that which needs to get done. This is Barnabas. It's Acts chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. Let me just quickly tell you what he did. He sold land, brought the money, and put it at the feet of the apostles so that they could distribute it for the furtherance of the gospel. He was an enabler. His resources became the launch pad for other people to spread the gospel who didn't have the resources. It's been good to have Hannah Kirby back with us. She was so faithful to come here during her Patrick Henry years and bring her friends. Now she's in Italy, part of the short cycle church planning team. She's due to go back March 18th. Today's March 3rd, 15 days from now, a little over two weeks. She's $560 a month short. Her over... Overseeing organization, Avant, will not let her go. They have a policy about how short you can be on your support before you go back. Unless she gets her support, she cannot go back. She was telling a story in there about sharing the gospel with a Catholic priest. He didn't know it, but that was the best day of his life. He had the, he had the precious jewels right there in his hand. He had the truth of God. He had eternal life right in his hands and didn't even know it. Stuck in his tradition, stuck in his works. And Hannah Kirby's over there trying to show him what it means that Jesus loved him and died on the cross for his sin. How about some enablers? Is there some resource here that she can go back? How about somebody picking up the whole rest of her year? Just go! 
Enablers, that was Barnabas, sold his land, get the gospel going. If the command is true, if the consequences are real, then we better take it seriously. Bobby and Berta Reed, I don't know where he's sitting this morning. How old are you, Bobby? 24 years old. When you're 24, you don't know very much. That's not a put down. You just don't know very much. He's going to take his wife and his baby to Mexico. I won't even go to Cancun right now. He's going to go train in Idaho on how, to, how you're supposed to survive a hostage crisis. He's going to go for weeks of training away from his wife and his baby this spring, pay thousands of dollars to have experts in survival and hostage and crisis situations teach him how to survive. Because he's going to go take the gospel to a place in the country where, the, where it's highly likely that you can encounter people who will take you hostage and try to hold you for ransom. I think you're nuts. It's called laying down your life for the gospel, isn't it? He's got 30% of his support. He wants to go sooner than later. I think we ought to get him there before he changes his mind. Where are the enablers? Where are the enablers? I really liked what Glenn and Christine did in their seminar. Did you see it when you went? They had all these sheets of papers that represented skill sets. They had a person stand on this side of the room that was somebody who is in another culture, in another language, who does not have the gospel in their language. And then they began to line up the people on this end of everything they needed to get to that person. And as they added people, the person who is going to translate the gospel kept getting closer to this person. And they needed an airplane pilot and they needed some, somebody to do their IT computer and they needed somebody to do all kinds of things. I forget. They had about 18 people, or eight or nine or ten people stretched across there. They're the enablers so that this guy can reach this guy. We're a resource church. We've got to be burdened to enable. Enablers recognize that God owns it all. Enablers, number two, love to see his money and his resources converted into treasures in heaven. Number three, enablers are unselfish and generous. How about the intercessor? Number five, the intercessor, and then we go home. This is Colossians chapter four, verses two through four. You don't have to turn there. It is the great, mighty apostle Paul, well into his ministry years, begging the church at Colossians to seriously pray for him that the door of the gospel would be open. He didn't pray for him to have gas for his fort. He didn't pray to have this, pray to have, pray that a door for the gospel will open. Colossians 4, 3 and 4. If the mighty apostle Paul begged the church back home to be intercessory prayer warriors so that the doors of the gospel would open, don't you think Hannah Kirby in Italy, don't you think Dan and Barb Keys in Canada better have somebody praying for them? I've been where Dan Keyes ministers. It's a great country. Western Alberta, the native reservations there, and Indian Native Americans, and and the mistrust between the Native Americans and the whites, and just all the history of horrible, uh, horrible atrocities, 
from the government, from whites to what they did and different things. And I've seen things and understand a little bit why that happened. And to this day, there's just that racial. And Dan has been there for years trying to get a native young men converted to lead the church, to establish the church, to grow the church. And he'll get some going. And then they go and get on a drunk and go with somebody else's wife. It ruins all the things that's happened. And I saw Dan with his camera back in the 90s, his camera. We go to a rodeo, a native rodeo, and he's got his camera and his big telephoto lens. And the native kids are out there mutton busting. That's when they ride sheep before the real cowboys come in. And Dan's taking pictures with his big telescopic lens camera. Then he'd get them developed and blown up. Real cool picture of these native kids on their sheep or falling. And, and then he'd figure out and he'd go around and ask people who their name is and where they lived. And then he would go out on the reservation to their house. He would knock on their door and he would open up the picture and he'd say, Is this your kid? Yeah, man, it's a great picture. Everybody come, look at him, look at look at laugh and carry on and tell stories and look at the picture. Come in, have coffee. Ah. You think Dan Keyes is smart enough to know how to save a Native American on his own? Do you think Dan Keyes can say anything that can convert a Native American? If the Apostle Paul needed people praying for doors of the gospel, Dan Keyes needs people praying for doors of the gospel. So Dan Keyes is sitting at their table, drinking a cup of coffee, talking to him, introducing himself, telling him what he's doing, trying to share the gospel. And he begins to share the gospel. What's going to make the plugs come out of their ears? What's going to make their hearts soft that there's intercessors back home praying? You see, we have to do our part, then God does his part. We share the gospel, we preach Christ, and then God opens blind eyes and he chooses to use evangelists speaking the word with intercessory prayer warriors praying. I don't know why God does it that way. I'm not sure that anybody would confuse Fellowship Bible Church with a praying church right now. Shame on us. By his grace, may we change. We have missionaries look at our flags. And we like to give a few hundred bucks a month. I'd like to see that go way up. But Fellowship Bible Church needs to be on its knees for these missionaries so that the gospel can do its work. It's God's design plan. Let's bow in prayer. Before I pray for us, what is it that you love that could be a mechanism for the gospel and you could be an entrepreneur connecting your needy friends with Jesus? Who are you to encourage Who should you speak to, evangelist? How about the enablers out there? And then all of us called to be intercessors. Intercessors are prayer warriors. They see the spiritual battle and feel it. They recognize human limitation. They know that only God can open blind eyes. So they pray, pray, pray. May God show us the part that we are to play. May God forgive us for only being aware of the need on this Lost Souls Awareness Sunday. May God mobilize us and not let us rest for the cause of the gospel. Father, thank you that you are a loving God and thank you that you have provided a way of salvation and you've called your church to share and spread the good news of the gospel May we be a growing part of it. Forgive us, Father, for our weaknesses and our failures and our selfishnesses and our idolatries that distract us. 
Please help us, Lord, to have a burning fire and zeal for the gospel. And show us, as individuals and then corporately as a body, how to respond. That we would step it up with our missionary zeal. It's in Jesus' name I pray, Lord, asking you to work among us. Amen.